Section 66 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 3 Gilead's Masterpiece Comes to the Succor of Lettieri's Masterpiece. Some time later, any fisherman who should have been foolish enough to loiter about that coast at that season would have been repaid for his hardihood by the sight of something singular between the Douvres. This is what he would have perceived. Four stout beams, equally spaced, running from one Douvre to the other, and forced, as it were, between the rocks, which is the best sort of solidity. On the side of the little Douvre their ends rested and were buttressed against projections of the rock. On the side of the great Douvre these extremities must have been violently driven into the cliffs by blows from the hammer of some powerful workman standing upon the very beam which he was forcing in. These beams were a little longer than the width of the passage, hence the firmness of their insertion, hence also their adjustment on an inclined plane. They touched the great Douvre at an acute and the little Douvre at an obtuse angle. They sloped slightly, but unequally, which was a defect. But for this defect, one might have said that they were arrayed for the reception of the platform of a bridge. To these beams were attached four sets of tackle, each furnished with its tie and fall, and having this bold peculiarity that the block and fall with two sheaves was at one end of the beam, while the simple pulley was at the opposite end. This separation, too great not to be dangerous, was probably necessitated by the operations to be accomplished. The blocks were strong and the pulleys solid. To these sets of tackle cables were attached, which appeared like threads at a distance, and below this aerial apparatus of falls and timberwork the massive wreck, the Durande, seemed suspended by threads. It was not yet suspended. Perpendicularly beneath the timbers, eight openings had been made in the deck, four on the starboard and four on the port side of the engine, and eight others beneath these in the bottom. Cables descending vertically from the four tackles entered the deck, then emerged from the bottom, through the openings on the starboard side, passed under the keel and under the engine, and re-entered the ship again through the port openings, and reascending, traversing the bridge afresh, returned and were coiled round the four pulleys of the beam, where a sort of Burton tackle seized them and made of them a bundle bound to a single cable and capable of being guided by a single arm. A hook and a dead eye, through the hole of which the single cable was passed and wound, completed and checked the apparatus when necessary. This combination forced the four tackles to work together, and a complete check on the suspending forces, a dynamic rudder, in the hand of the pilot of the operation, maintained the rigging in equilibrium. The very ingenious adjustment of this burton possessed some of the simplifying qualities of the Weston pulley of today, and of the antique polyspaston of Vitruvius. Gilead had invented this, although he knew neither Vitruvius, who no longer existed, nor Weston, who did not as yet exist. The length of the cables varied according to the unequal slope of the beams, 
and corrected this defect to some extent. The ropes were dangerous, the untarred cables might break, chains would have been better, but chains would have run badly through the blocks. All this apparatus was full of defects, but, as made by a single man, was surprising. However, we abridge the explanation. The reader will understand that we omit many details, which would render the matter clear to the members of the craft and obscure to all others. The top of the engine's smokestack passed between the two middle beams. Gilliatt, without suspecting it, an unconscious plagiarist of the unknown, had reproduced, after a lapse of three centuries, the mechanism of the carpenter of Salbris, a rudimentary and incorrect mechanism, hazardous to him who should dare to make use of it. Let us remark here that even the grossest faults do not prevent a mechanism from working after a fashion. It limps, but it walks. The obelisk on the square of St. Peter's at Rome was erected contrary to all laws of statics. Tsar Peter's coach was so constructed that it seemed as though it must upset at every step. But it moved onward all the same. What deformities were in the machinery of Marley? Everything there was out of perpendicular, but nonetheless it furnished Louis the Fourteenth with water. At all events Gilliatt had confidence. He had even counted upon success so far as to fasten in the rail of the paunch, one day when he went there, two pairs of iron rings opposite each other, on the two sides of the boat, spaced in the same way as the four rings of the Durande, to which were attached the four chains of the smokestack. Gilead evidently had a very complete and well-defined plan. Having all the chances against him, he wished to place all precautions on his side. He did things which appeared useless, a sign of attentive forethought. His manner of procedure would have puzzled, as we have already remarked, an observer or even a connoisseur. A witness of his labors who should have beheld him, for instance, with unprecedented efforts and at the risk of breaking his neck, drive, with his hammer, eight or ten great spikes which he had forged into the base of the two Douvres, at the entrance to the defile of the reef, would have found some difficulty in comprehending the reason for these spikes, and would probably have inquired to what purpose all this useless trouble. Then, if he had beheld Gilliatt measuring the fragment of the bulwark of the bow, which, as the reader will remember, remained clinging to the wreck, then attaching a strong warp to the upper edge of this fragment, cutting away with his axe the dislocated timber-work which held it, drag it out of the passageway with the assistance of the receding tide, pushing the bottom while Gilliatt tugged at the top, and then, with great difficulty, attaching, with the small cable, this heavy mass of planks and beams, larger than the very entrance of the defile, to the spikes sunk in the base of the little Douvre, the observer would have understood still less, perhaps, and would have said to himself that, if Gilead wished, for the convenience of his operations, to clear the strait of the Douvre of this encumbrance, he had only to let it fall into the tide, which would have carried it out with the current. Gilead probably had his reasons. In order to fix his spikes in the base of the Douvre, Gilead took advantage of all the fissures in the granite, 
enlarged them when needful, and first drove in wedges of wood, in which he afterwards planted the iron spikes. He made a beginning of the same preparations in the two rocks which reared themselves at the other extremity of the reef strait, on the east. He garnished all their crannies with wooden plugs, as though he wished to hold these crannies also in readiness to receive clamps. But this appeared to be a simple precaution, for he drove in no spikes. It will be understood that, out of prudence, in his penury, he could only expend his materials in proportion to his needs, and at the moment when the necessity presented itself. It was another complication added to so many other difficulties. A first labor achieved, a second arose. Gilead passed from one to the other without hesitation, and took this giant stride with resolution. End of chapter 3 Gilead's masterpiece comes to the succor of Letierie's masterpiece.